0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. This morning we're going to be wrestling and exploring a very important topic. Uh, It comes up quite a bit, yet there seems to be very few answers. It seems like we're grasping for the wind and getting nowhere. And this is the question of, what is good decision making? What does it mean to make decisions from a Christian perspective, decisions that give life, decisions that can be made with a good conscience, decisions that minimize the brokenness of ourselves and the world that we live in? Decisions that leave us fulfilled and satisfied rather than regretful and guilt-ridden. Before I get started, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning that we can gather together. We pray that your words of scripture might illuminate truths to us. May we not depend on human philosophy and thinking, but the clarity and inspiration of scripture. May the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection shape every decision we make, and may his blood wash us clean when we don't make good decisions. Well, you know, we've all been there. We've been under situations where we've had to make decisions. In some ways, we could say that everything we think, everything we do, and everything we say is a result of a decision we have made consciously or subconsciously at that very moment in time or some other previous point in time. As I was saying earlier, we're in the midst of a very important decision, C-section or natural Now this isn't necessarily a moral decision, but it's hard, it's difficult. Often decisions come about because there are two equally bad options, or two equally good options. You might be in a state of analysis paralysis, where you are just stuck, there just doesn't seem to be a clear answer. Or you might be in a state of perennial disappointment. You might be reflecting on your life and not be happy with the decisions you have made. Or you may be an instinctual decision maker who neither deliberates nor reflects on the decisions you make. Whatever the case, I'm sure many of you are in the midst of a very important decision right now. There might be a cute guy or girl at work. Should I ask them out or should I not? does it matter if they're Christian or not. Should I rent or should I buy? I'm at a crossroads in my career. Should I take the job that would mean I'm working late but earning more, or should I take the job that pays less but is also less demanding? Then my favorite one, what should I watch on Netflix? I tell you what, this is one of my most crippling decisions. I can be scrolling for 30 minutes before I decide what to watch. Most people have FOMO, fear of missing out. I have F-O-W-T, fear of wasting time. It's a serious serious illness. but in all seriousness, what do we do about this? How do we make good decisions? This morning, I want to go through a framework for good decision-making. I want to say upfront that I don't have all the answers to all of your very unique and sensitive forks in the road. I cannot begin to analyze or unpack every major life decision you might be facing. What I can do is offer a framework I think good decision-making is Bible-based, God-fearing, spirit-led, and Jesus-like. That's number one, Bible-based, number two, God-fearing, number three, spirit-led, and number four, Jesus-like. I want us to imagine these four principles as four pillars of decision-making. Even without one of these pillars, our decisions will probably be shaky, you know, the Bible speaks a lot about making decisions, but we will focus on four main passages for each of these four pillars. So let's get started. What does it mean to make Bible-based decisions? Well, our first um, Bible reading is from 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 which captures what Bible-based decision-making is all about. It says this, all Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God breathed. What an amazing sentence. This is both an exhaustive as well as an incredible claim. It's incredible because Paul is saying that God has used human agents to communicate his truths to us. It is incredible because God has intervened so that we can know how we can be reconciled to him but also know how we can live according to his desires. It is incredible because we can have confidence in what has been written down and transmitted to us. The entire Christian faith is built on our God-breathed scriptures. Since the early 90s, uh, reported sightings of UFOs have risen exponentially to about 5,000 in 2016. There's an increasing fascination with the extraterrestrial because I think there is some deep part of us that is fascinated by intelligence that comes from outside the human mind. This is why we love going down these YouTube black holes till the early hours of the morning, watching dogs and cats doing interesting and fascinating things. It's fascinating because they're smarter than they should be. But if we discovered an alien tablet or artifact on Earth or on Mars, it would change the course of history and how we view ourselves. But imagine this, the God who created the universe has communicated to us in human language, not just some archaic information, but about how we can know him and how we can worship him. This is such an incredible and amazing claim. But that's not all there is. This passage also makes an exhaustive claim. It starts with all scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, all of it has been given to us by God. This is an exhaustive claim. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to accept and what we don't. All of it is God inspired. It's also exhaustive because in verse 17, it says that it has been given to us so that we, servants of God, can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Think about this. All scripture, thoroughly equipped, every good work. The Bible has an exhaustive claim on our lives. This is because the Bible is sufficient for our lives. But do we really believe this? If we really, really believe this, it should shape our decision making profoundly. So what do we do then? If you're here today and you're struggling to know what your future holds, start by praying and reading your Bible. If you're here today and you're sick and tired of making wrong decisions, start by praying and reading your Bible. If you're here today and you don't know where to live or who to marry, start by praying and reading your Bible. But I think when we as Christians hear this, we can fall into two traps, at least two traps, I think. The first trap is that we can often throw the baby out with the bathwater because I think because of our limitations, we can often think that since the Bible doesn't speak about every issue directly, like dating, or the impact of technology, or some of the modern issue, then the rest of the Bible has lost its credibility. But let's not forget the claim the Bible is making. It is both incredible and exhaustive. The fact that we cannot apply the Bible to modern issues is a limitation on our side, not on the Bible's. This should motivate us to read the Bible more while depending on God more. It is a call to plead with God to reveal himself and give us the wisdom and skills we need for decision-making in the modern world in which we live in and through the Bible. This truth should not make us throw out the Bible, but it should make us embrace it all the more. And I think the second trap that we can often fall into when we say that our decisions should be Bible-based decisions is that we can often think it's, me and my Bible alone in a room for God to reveal something private. Sure, God can do that. But let's not forget the function of church community here. The Bible has been given to us to be read with the church. We are privileged to be living in a time where we have access to all the Christian thinkers that came before us, as well as the immediate church community that we are a part of your pastors, your GC leader, your GC, and the Christians that surround you exist for a reason. They exist so that you can read, wrestle, and cry out to God together for help. When we read the Bible together and have people with different gifts and unique voices speak into our lives, we start to gradually piece together the application of scripture to our very specific decisions. The Bible is sufficient but that sufficiency is mediated through community. The Bible is sufficient, but that sufficiency is mediated through community. We have to return to the Bible, read it, and be part of a church-wide discourse together. This will help us understand what God has to say about a particular topic in its entirety, leading to better decisions. But I think when we do speak about Bible-based decisions, we might feel like there are just too many rules there to follow. Is the Christian life always about having to live up to the seemingly uptight, legalistic, moralistic bar that we can often perceive to be in the Bible? The second pillar of our framework, which is God-fearing decision-making, helps us here. Fear is an extremely loaded word and has come to the forefront of our cultural consciousness in recent decades. We live in this post 9-11 world that is filled with paranoia and polarization. At the macro level, there is fear about imminent threats of international conflict and natural disasters. At the micro-domestic level, there are often few things scarier than a tyrannical husband, a cancer diagnosis, or financial bankruptcy whatever the case, fear is something that drives decision making, isn't it? Fear is the reason we take out insurance and fear is the reason we have a password on our phones. But is this, the re- is this what we mean when we say that we ought to be God-fearing in our decision making? I want to say up front and straight up that the answer is a resounding no. When we fear God, we don't fear his condemnation, but we acknowledge him as king. When we fear God, we don't fear his condemnation, but we acknowledge him as king. And as we read over and over again, if you're a Christian today, there is no condemnation if you belong to Christ. There does not need to be any fear since our God is also our good and loving Father. At the same time, we're also told to fear God. Our focal passage here is a you know, popular Sunday school one and it'll help us unpack this a bit more. It's from Proverbs 9.10, it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What an amazing statement. Do you want to know how to make good decisions? Then fear God. The Bible tells us that it is by fearing the Lord that we gain wisdom and knowledge. And by extension, we need this wisdom and knowledge from God to make good decisions. But if fear doesn't mean condemnation, then what does it really mean? John Walton, an eminent Old Testament scholar says, at the heart of the fall of our first parents, the first sin of Adam and Eve was a lack of the fear of God. We know how the story goes. God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in this amazing, idyllic garden. Genesis two sixteen. God says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. I'm not sure about you, but when I first read this passage, I thought, this is really odd. Why wouldn't God, want human beings to have access to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, why was God impeding humans' access to the wisdom that he had created in the first place? It seems as though God is a God, is a God of restrictions for restriction's sake. Well, that's definitely not the case. Uh, Walton says, what God was doing was making a distinction between wisdom and instructions with God's presence and kingship on one hand, and wisdom and instruction without God's presence and kingship on the other hand. When Adam and Eve sinned, they wanted to be like God in the sense that they wanted wisdom while operating independently of God. They wanted the ability to make good decisions, to rule and reign independently of God. The problem was not that God didn't want them to have wisdom or to make good decisions, but he wanted them to have it under the umbrella of his kingship. This is what we mean by God-fearing. Fear means living under the rule and kingship of God, which forms the foundation to our wisdom. Ironically, Adam and Eve, seeking to be like God in knowing good and evil, actually lost that capacity when they were exiled from the garden because of their bad decision. And from that point on to today in our modern world, we see a litany of bad decision making fueled by sin and temptation. Now why is this important to us? How is it relevant to you and to me? Church, I want us to be extremely careful about where our ears are oriented. Is our ear oriented towards God or towards the serpent? What are the cultural voices we are listening to today? I think broadly, we can fall into two buckets when we don't fear God. The first is a term that we've heard before in earlier talks, it's called expressive individualism. This is the view where people say, I determine what my value, purpose, and meaning without the bounds of God's instructions are. I am the creator and destroyer of my own worlds. No one can dictate my duties or even my identity. I determine my meaning, I determine my purpose, I determine my own value. I am my own God. I think one area of decision making where this infection is so visible, even within a church context, is in the area of the most expensive currency we possess, time. Ever since the financial revolution of the late 1600s, there came this deep sense of placing a value on time. Time had a cost. A simple example is interest. If you pay later, you pay more. Time has value. And after that, we start to increasingly see our day jobs as time we have purchased for ourselves. I can have my weeknights and weekends off because I have effectively paid the price for it during the week. Notice the emphasis, this is my time that I have earned. This is time for me to do whatever I want with whoever I want since I have paid the price. This sort of thinking is now expanding in this growing movement for financial freedom. Increasingly, young people want to invest now so that they can retire early. They want to earn so much money now that they can purchase an extended period of time to do whatever they want without any constraints for the rest of their life. Church, this is certainly wisdom. There are great things about this, but it's not necessarily wisdom with God's instruction. It may yield positive results, but it's not necessarily under the umbrella of God's kingship. The fact that you're here on a Sunday, or at GC on a Wednesday, with the time you have earned during the week, is a reflection of the fact that you are not the king of your own world who has purchased time for yourself to do whatever you want in your own little kingdom. Instead, you are a vice-regent with God as king, and you are making decisions on that basis. I want to commend each and every one of you for that. Yes, Time and money are gifts from God and are to be enjoyed. However, if it is not enjoyed under the fear of God or the umbrella of God's kingship, then that is very bad decision-making. The second bucket we fall into is a sort of tribalistic groupthink. What I mean by this is that if you're not telling yourself what good decisions are, that the tribe or collective that you're part of, consciously or subconsciously, is making those decisions for you. A classic example of this is this idea of wanderlust, or the travel bug that is sold to our demographic today. If we ask young adults why they wish to travel, they say many things. I want to expand my horizons, or I want to learn more about the world. And these are great answers. But often, not always, the answer behind the answer is really, I want to find more of myself or find some meaning that can only be found in new experiences or maturity that can only be found in the beaches of Greece. There may be some truths to this. But notice once again, when God is not present, when he's not king over your wisdom-seeking adventures, any maturity that you may gain from extensive travel that you may think will make you a well-rounded person who can make good decisions is ultimately deficient. And in some cases, destructive. A classic example of this is Solomon. In 1 Kings 3, God appears to King Solomon in a dream. Almost like the genie appearing to Aladdin, um, he grants him one wish, and Solomon asks for wisdom, and God says, I'm going to give you a wise and discerning mind. At the end of his life, Solomon's life is really a tragedy. He goes from this amazing king who can make these incredible decisions to a man who has married hundreds of wives and concubines who have led him astray to worshiping idols. What happened to Solomon? How did such a wise king make such bad decisions? Well in the ancient sort of Near Eastern context, it was very common for kings to marry from other nations as a strategic way of building military might and national security. Solomon thinking he was wise and being protective of his own country does this but at the end of the day, it leads him to idolatry, turning away from the true God and worshiping false ones. What happened to Solomon? Tribalistic groupthink. His many wives and concubines had a profound impact on him. The tribe that he was part of did the thinking for him. Solomon exchanged exercising wisdom under God's kingship to exercising wisdom outside of God's kingship. This resulted in his wives and concubines impacting his decisions more than God. Like Adam and Eve, Solomon wanted wisdom independently of God, since he trusted in his alliances rather than the God who gave him wisdom in the first place. This resulted in a wasted, tragic life filled with bad decisions. But how can we avoid this? How can I ex- apply these principles and counter examples to my own life? Well, I think our decision-making needs to be spirit-led. Spirit-led, which is our third pillar. Before I go into what spirit-led means, let me tell you what it's not. Have you ever heard the words, I feel like God told me to break up with you? I feel like the Spirit is telling me to cut off my toxic relationships. I feel like God is telling me that everything will be okay. If you've heard these statements before, I'm sorry. I'm not opposed to God speaking directly to you outside of his perfect word, but the problem is when people confuse their conscience for the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul places great importance on your conscience. It's very important, but it takes a backseat to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, and it's definitely not the same as the Holy Spirit. What is spirit-led decision-making? It is prayerful and worshipful dependence on God leading to a transformation of our minds. You know, neuroscientists tell us that the decisions you make today were determined by our choices made minutes ago, and in some cases, even years ago. Think about this. The reason why you're here at church instead of waking up from a hangover is not because it was necessarily a conscious decision you made today. It's because of a decision you made to follow Christ at some point in time. It's a result of a decision pattern that was created a long time ago. You know, when people ask why they're unable to make good decisions, like why they always return to destructive relationships or always return to bad food habits or always repeat the same mistakes, the answer is not always in the bad decision they have made for the hundredth time it is because they have created a habit, a neural pathway, and spiritual spirals that dictate that decision. Bad decisions don't come out of a vacuum, but out of a thought, life, and speech pattern that has been reinforced. You know, on some level, this might sound like secular wisdom, but we have to be careful not to separate what science says about the human brain and what God says about the human mind. We are whole, holistic beings. We should be just as concerned about the physical patterns we set as the spiritual patterns we set because these two are inseparable even though they are not the same. God's solution encompasses what our best scientists tell us but it can't be reduced to just that. God's solution is all of what our best science tells us and goes one step further. Avoiding bad decision making goes a step further than reading self-help books or listening to TED Talks, as important as they are, God's solution for us is to practice spirit-led living of prayerful dependence. When we pray, we go to God and tell him, God, you are the source of all good, even my good decisions. Teach me to be less like who I used to be and more like your son. Let me always be motivated to please you in my decision making and not myself or even others. Even if I make bad decisions, I know that you are sovereign. I know that you have a purpose for all that I experience. When we go to God and pray a prayer like this, confessing our inadequacies and acknowledging his sovereignty, things change. When we do this regularly, this transforms us, this changes us, it rewires our brain, transforms our mind, and enables us to make good decisions. As I say these words, I feel convicted since I don't do this nearly as much as I should. This doesn't guarantee that we'll be making good decisions all the time, since we're still flawed and imperfect people, but this sort of prayerful dependence aligns us with God's will, as we create new patterns. And our third passage sums this up really nicely. Romans 12, two says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul sets up the contrast. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but renew your mind. What's the result? We are able to determine or prove what God's will is. People always want to know what God's will is in their life. Too often we just want God to agree with all the decisions we've made. But God's will is not necessarily what our conscience tells us, and it's not necessarily what our really experienced mature friend might tell us, Because you know, Paul says all of this in this chapter's context of offering up all of us, all of our bodies as worship or as living sacrifices, as he calls it. This means that ultimately knowing God's will cannot be separated from surrendering our life, offering up our whole bodies for his purposes and his plans as we practice spiritual habits like prayer, fellowship, fasting, Bible reading, gathering, participating in the Lord's Supper, singing, and all of these amazing forms of worship God has given us, it transforms our mind and leads us to finding God's will in decision making since we're surrendering all of us for his purpose. Again, this is not a legalistic prescription to put pressure on you, but a comfort knowing that we and our minds can be transformed. This is not a means of somehow gaining God's approval, but a natural response to his approval that you already have. Well this morning, if you're a paralyzed decision maker, there is hope that your mind can be transformed. If you're a decision maker who regrets every decision you've made, there is hope that your mind can be transformed. If you're a decision maker who just feels down and out, that you're incapable and inadequate, there is hope that your mind can be transformed and that you'll gradually fall into the pattern of making good decisions. Well, so far we've seen that Bible-based decision making is our first pillar since the Bible's claim about our lives is exhaustive and its very nature is incredible. God-fearing decision-making is our second pillar. This means that we don't fear his judgment and we don't have to you know, cower in front of him, but we make decisions under the umbrella of his kingship since that is where true wisdom is found. The third pillar is spirit-led. This is not your conscience, but it's a prayerful, worshipful dependence on God for the transforming of our minds so that we can form good patterns of decision-making. But you know, all of this is easier said than done. If only there was a model, someone to emulate when it comes to making good decisions. Unsurprisingly, our fourth pillar is Jesus-like decision-making. I'm sure at least some of us here are entertained by superhero movies. Uh, For those who aren't, I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, Film critics have wondered what gave birth to this sudden interest in superheroes. A lot of these film critics have concluded that the sudden interest is due to escapism. Their conclusion was that the culture needed a form of escape in the midst of multiple world wars and worldwide financial crises. In times of war, wouldn't it be nice to have a hero who has these superhuman powers who can circumvent this whole process and minimize casualties? In times of uncertainty, wouldn't it be nice to have a dependable, honorable, morally superior superhuman that just saves the day? Most importantly, wouldn't it be nice to have someone who makes the right decision, even when the odds are against his or her favor? There's a deep, idealistic part of us that just wants this to be true. Jesus-like decision-making is even more radical than anything you've ever seen on film. It's radical because it's not just about behaviors, it's about your heart as well as your decision's impact on others. Jesus-like decision making is really modeling the radical and extreme life of Christ, which includes taking our motives very seriously. If you look at what Jesus taught and how he lived, a significant amount of teaching was piercing through the external to the source, the heart. He spoke about how it's not just murder that's wrong, but ungodly anger is also wrong. It's not just adultery that's wrong, but it's also lust. It's not just good enough for us to look good on the outside, but we need to be cleaned from the inside. The point here is what you're thinking and the motivations for your decision making matters. Jesus-like decision making is radical in the sense that it's not just about what can be seen or consequences, but what can't be seen as well. Jesus cared about the human heart, and he cares about yours. The heart is the source of both good and evil. Our circumstances and surroundings, they're all distractions to what the real issue is. And we see this in the life of Christ. Jesus grew up in poverty. He was subjected to a miscarriage of justice. He was abandoned by his friends, and he was stapled naked on a cross. The fact that he was perfect was entirely due to his perfect nature and his perfect heart. He had every excuse to use his circumstances or his surroundings to make poor decisions. But being the perfect God-man, he chose to obey God at every point in time. Church, when we make decisions, we need to be acutely aware of the intentions and motives of our hearts. Our motives are at least as important as the consequences or circumstances of our decisions. I'm not saying consequences don't matter, of course they do. I'm saying motives also matter. It's not either or, it's both and. When we make a decision to give generously to anchor for the growth of God's kingdom, yes, our outward generosity is important, but are we giving with a joyful and sacrificial heart without expecting anything back? Your generosity matters, but your heart also matters. When we make a decision to serve at anchor, yes, our time and gifts are important, but are our hearts oriented towards service and love of God and others? Your time, presence, and gifts matter, but your heart also matters. But if God does care about our human heart in making decisions, what must our heart look like? Jesus, like decision making, is also radical and extreme because of its sacrificial nature. God has made at least two profound decisions. His first was to create the heavens and the earth. The second was God chose to step down into humanity and die a terrible death because of our failures. Jesus' model of sacrifice gives us the ultimate model for decision making because Jesus' sacrifice tells us that good Decision-making involves sacrificing our freedoms. The passage we um, heard earlier, Philippians 2, 5 to 8, sums this up really nicely. Let me read that again. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we make decisions, especially ones that involve relationships, our model is Christ, who made a decision to step down from being the Lord of the universe to that of a servant who was butchered mercilessly, only to rise again on the third day. If you're a Christian today, I wanna to say this very clearly. Do not forget that the greatest decision of all is not your own. The greatest decision of all is God's choice to love you by becoming a man and giving up his life for you even when you have, do, and will continue to make the wrong decisions. Unlike us, Jesus wasn't trying to hold on to his freedoms or use it for his advantage, but he let it go out of love. He voluntarily gave up his status and power for our sake. He chose to become human. He decided to die. Jesus is the ultimate model for our decisions. One of my favorite examples of modeling this is one of my high school teachers who was a missionary in a predominantly Muslim country. He gave up eating pork before he left. Eating pork is a freedom that we have as Christians. Who doesn't love good bacon? But he gave it up, since his intention was to serve and love the Muslim people. He couldn't do that with a good conscience if he knew that they would be offended by his dietary practices. Our question this morning is, is our decision-making one that seeks to exercise all of the amazing freedoms we have? Or is it one that is constantly looking to sacrificing those freedoms? Are we constantly looking to make choices that wish to exploit all of the freedoms that we have as Christians? Or are we looking to sacrifice them so that we can serve and love those who are around us? The answer to this question has a profound impact on our decision-making since it's no longer about just me and what I'm allowed to do, but it's about those around me as well. Jesus liked decision-making is radical decision making, since it's not just about our external behavior, but it's about our heart and our desire to sacrifice our preferences for the sake of others. Well, this morning, um, if you're not sure where you stand with God, and all of this just seems like a bit too much for you, there is one decision I encourage you to make. The most important decision you can make right now as you listen is to take the offer of forgiveness that Jesus has given you and be reconciled to God. The most important decision you can make today if you don't know God on a personal level is to trust in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus as the only means of knowing Him. Bring your weary soul and heavy laden heart to Him and He promises to give you rest. He promises to give you unconditional love no matter how many bad decisions you have made or will make you can begin a new chapter of good decision-making right here. You may fail at making decisions in the future, as will I, but you will never regret the decision to follow Jesus since he decided to love you first.